Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here today for a production of both the History and Native American Studies channels. We're here today. Our special guest is Dr. Chip Colwell, author of Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, Inside the Fight to Reclaim Native America's Culture. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Colwell. Thank you so much. So Dr. Colwell is the uh, Senior Curator of Anthropology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. His work has appeared in uh, numerous publications. Before we jump into the questions, uh, for Plundered Skulls and uh, Stolen Spirits, can you tell us a little bit about your the cover selection? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the cover was uh, suggested by my publisher, the University of Chicago Press. And for your listeners who haven't seen it yet, it's this kind of haunting image of a Plains Indian uh, men's shirt. Um, it's, it's really beautiful, and yet it's kind of opaque, a bit kind of like a phantom. It's both there and not there at the same time. And for me, it really resonated deeply with the, the themes of the book, which really have to try to grapple with this question of to whom do such objects belong? Um, how do different cultures, how do different people treat these objects? Are they seen as living things belonging to a living culture? Or are they seen as mere things that perhaps should be put on display? Or are they things that are commodities that can be traded? So to me, the picture really kind of nicely captured that contested nature of these objects that are at the center of the repatriation debates. So how did you become uh, the senior curator of anthropology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, as well as the museum official in charge of repatriation? repatriation? Mm -hmm. What is repatriation in the context of the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, also known as NAGPRA, as well as 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 for Native American cultures? Uh Uh-huh. So I was really lucky to get the position I I now hold at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Uh, The woman who who was in the role before me held it for 33 years. And so um, there are really just these occasional windows that open up uh, every quarter century for a job like this one. And I've uh, held it now for about 12 years. Pretty much right when I was hired, I was asked to be in charge of the museum's repatriation program, the program to oversee claims for certain kinds of cultural items or human remains that were being held by the museum. And a lot of this work unfolds in the context of a 1990 federal law called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA as it's often called for short. And NAGPRA essentially establishes a process for uh, lineal descendants and Native American tribes to claim uh, certain 
items and ancestors from museums that have received federal funding, such as the Denver Museum. Um, you know, the, the reason why Native American tribes and communities and individuals are seeking these items is because over the last century or more of the development of the, the modern museum, many objects and items that were collected were taken in ways that violated the cultural traditions of Native communities. Sometimes they were taken without consent. And sometimes these items were even just flatly stolen. And so we're going through this really amazing and important period of trying to redress those mistakes, trying to come to terms with this past so that we can do what's right and return uh, things that have been erroneously taken or illegally taken or just stolen. And we're trying to provide some some kind of peace and uh, some kind of... um, uh, we're trying to build a new kind of bridge with Native communities by returning these ancestors and items. Between 1903 and 1907, how did Brooklyn Museum curator R. Stuart Cullen, in your in your book, come to obtain or pilfer uh, Zuni war gods, particularly from the Corn Mountain Shrine? And what were the impulses for the Smithsonian's Bureau of Ethnology to collect thousands of Zuni cultural artifacts? Mm-hmm. So Stuart Kulin, more than a century ago, was one of the most famed anthropologists in in the United States. He got his start at the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And in 1903, he was hired as a new curator at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. And it was a new museum. They had uh, what every curator hates, which is empty shelves. So Kulin looked around and tried to figure out where he could collect the most things as quickly as possible. He pretty quickly zeroed in on the Pueblo of Zuni in northwestern New Mexico. And there he he traveled and immediately began collecting. and And he found that the Zunis were willing to sell him almost everything they had. Um, they're selling him pottery and clothing and musical item uh, items, uh, you know, implements for farming, um, tools. I mean, just pretty much everything he wanted. Um, but they wouldn't sell him the thing he wanted most, which was sacred and religious objects. And at this time, a lot of anthropologists like Kulin, uh, you know, curators at, in Brooklyn and Philadelphia and also at the Smithsonian, these curators really felt that Native American culture was on the precipice of extinction. And so these curators were doing everything they could to kind of sweep up the material culture of Native peoples in the belief that by preserving at least the physical things, they were in some measure preserving the culture of these fast-fading cultures. So Kulin resorted um, to pretty nefarious um, means to obtain these religious objects. And Zunis did almost everything they could to try to prevent the the removal of some of these most sacred items. Uh, So for example, uh, Zuni uh, policemen were actually sent around the Pueblo and they, they told Pueblo members that anybody caught selling religious items would be executed. And that, I mean, that, that's just how serious this crime was considered from the Zuni perspective. And Kulin knew this, and yet he still persisted. 
And he was especially entranced by these items that are called in Zuni, Ahayuda, are often translated in English as, as war gods. And these are wooden sculptures that are typically about two feet tall. They're carved every year by religious priests who believe that they aren't carving objects, but they're literally helping to give birth to living beings. They talk to these wood items as they would to a a child when they're first born. And then they talk to them as they would an adult once they're fully formed. And these Ahayuda then are placed at shrines, such as one at a nearby mountain called Corn Mountain. And the Zuni believe that the Ahayuda there are serving the purpose of protecting the Zuni people and even keeping the entire universe in balance. But nonetheless, people like Kulin, they persisted and persisted. And with enough money and enough effort, they were able to secure some of these Ahayuda. And we now know today that these Ahayuda are spread all across the United States and even around the world. So how did that couple in your book, the Cranes from New England, develop such a monomatic obsession for Native American material culture? And how did their collection wind up at the Denver Museum of uh, uh, Nature and Science? Also, what was Zuni Tribal Resolution M70-78991? And why did the late 1970s competing competing claims um, of the Denver Art Museum and Zuni peoples over the war gods pivot on the idea of communal property? Mm -hmm. So I talk about my book, a couple named Mary and Francis Crane. Uh, They were uh, blue blue bloods from New England, uh, very wealthy, well-to-do. And in the 1950s, they had to leave New England uh, to go and and they went to Florida for Mr. Crane's health. They didn't quite know what to do with themselves. And they went on a tour of the American West. And there they discovered uh, this whole um, kind of culture of collecting Native American items. And they just they became enraptured by it, totally fascinated. And they ended up spending the next 18 or so years of their lives uh, doing almost nothing but collecting items. And they would end up gathering, amassing almost 12,000 objects. And that included six of these Ahayuda or war gods that we've already been talking about. In 1968, they ended up donating their entire collection to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, uh, where I work. And the story, I think, helps, you know, kind of illustrate, too, these winding pathways that that sacred objects can often go on, where they're they're collected, they're traded, they're bought and sold. And and these what are to Zuni people, literal living beings are transformed into commodities that are just kind of passed around like like, you know, baseball playing cards in a sense. And so in the, the late 1970s. The Zuni tribal leadership, its religious and political leadership, came to realize that many of their most sacred items had been removed from their shrines and other resting places. And especially the war gods, these Ahayuda, had been taken and, and were spread everywhere. And so this tribal resolution you mentioned essentially put in motion the, the effort of the Zuni religious leadership to reclaim, to what we call repatriate, to bring back home all of these stolen Ahayuda all across the U.S., all around the world in museums everywhere. And part of the argument that they were making was not only are these 
intensely sacred objects that require our utmost respect and devotion, but that these are items that aren't owned by any individual, but these are in fact items that are essentially communal property, that these are things, these are beings made for and by the Zuni people. And so even if a Zuni person took an Ahayuda from a shrine and sold it, that Zuni didn't have actually the authority to do that. That Zuni person didn't have the right because that Ahayuda is in a very real way um, a part of the entire community, belonging to the entire community. And the entire community had never given its consent to sell or part with an Ahayuda. Can you elucidate uh, the causes of the 1864 U.S. Army massacre of Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples at Sand Creek in Colorado? And also explain uh, how the killings, as well as the uh, trade in scalps and material culture, proceeded. Please also, if possible, uh, trace the chain of events and state legislation that culminated in the uh, 1986 Federal Bones Bill, those, uh, a variety of repatriation bill proposals, the, 1990, uh, the 1989 National Museum of the American Indian Act, and then finally the next year, NAGPRA. Mm-hmm. So in the 1860s, the state of Colorado, where I am now, really stood at the the crossroads of manifest destiny, really the exact point at which America's dreams of westward expansion crashed in the reality of Native Americans who were unwilling to surrender their land or way of life to these new immigrants. And so throughout the 1860s, these new immigrants were coming, uh, and as they came, they were regularly being attacked by many of the the warriors of, of the tribes of the plains, you know, the Kiowa, the Comanche, the Ute, Hickory Apache, uh, Cheyenne, uh, Arapaho, and many more. And these newly arrived immigrants who survived that passage across the plains at times welcomed and even begged for the wholesale slaughter of all Indians here. In 1864, the kind of violence that was engulfing the territory became worse and worse. And there was the murder of a family called the Hunkgate family. And this was a family of settlers, not not far from Denver. Uh, They apparently were killed by some native community. It's unclear by whom. And this murder of this family really inflamed uh, those in Colorado. Although, you know, this had clearly the, the anger and urge for violence had been building for a number of years. And in 1864, the state of the territory of Colorado at that point uh, raised the third regiment of volunteers of the U.S. Army. And the territorial governor at the time, John Evans, raised the, the third regiment with the idea that they would uh, that they would take care of the so-called Indian problem, right? This this violence that, from the immigrant perspective, uh, could only be solved by the removal of native peoples. So, on a bitter cold morning of November 29th, eighteen sixty four, you had nearly seven hundred soldiers of the U.S. Army, largely the Third Regiment, but other regiments uh, had joined. And they approached a settlement of Cheyenne and Arapaho 
set, uh, I'm sorry, a settlement of Cheyenne and Arapaho people at a place called Sand Creek um, out on the Eastern Plains and what's now um, in Eastern Colorado. And as the, uh, the leaders of the Cheyenne Arapaho began to approach the army, the army opened fire on the village and they began to kill everyone they could. And by the next morning, upwards of 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho lay dead, mostly women, children, and the elderly. But the murder of the, uh, of the Arapaho and Cheyenne wasn't enough. And over the next 24 hours, the soldiers rampaged through the village, looting it, taking you know, weapons and clothing and what they called, so quote unquote, trophies. But they began to also take body parts of these massacre victims. They took scalps, they took fingers, they took ears, they even took the private parts of men and women. The 3rd Regiment returned back to Denver at the end of 1864, and it was a jubilant Denver. They were literally greeted by a parade uh, that snaked through Denver streets 10 blocks long. It was said that 100 of these scalps that were taken from the massacre site were actually strung across the, the stage at, in Denver's local theater. So it wasn't just the, the scalps and other body parts that were taken um, that would end up in museums like the Denver Museum one day. It was also many of the remains that were simply left at the massacre site itself that over the years people came and took skulls and other body parts. In the 1980s, Native Americans had worked very hard to start a legal and political movement to have remains such as those taken from the Sand Creek Massacre returned and, and buried or reburied. Uh, there, of course, were you know, thousands of, of skeletons in the museums at this point. So it's estimated somewhere were probably about 200,000 Native American skeletons were in U.S. museums in, by the 1980s. And so uh, you mentioned the Bones Bill. Um, that was one of the first uh, titles to legislation that was proposed in Congress. And it would take 16 different uh, uh, bills uh, to be presented to Congress before the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed. And it was this law that really helped shape uh, what we are still trying to navigate, which is how do we as community members, how do we as museum professionals do the right thing in returning ancestors to their descendants and returning sacred objects to their most appropriate places? Just a quick follow-up question. And that was prompted um, partially by the uh, Sand Creek skulls of the Smithsonian, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there were... There were were many people involved in this movement in the 1970s and 1980s were many different people that uh, I think helped make the moral arguments that led to these this federal law. Uh, but a really key moment came when uh, a woman named um, Sa- uh, um, Suzanne Schoen Harjo, uh, who's of Cheyenne and, and Muskogee descent, when she realized that it, the Smithsonian held five skulls that were taken from the Sand Creek Massacre. At the time, she was executive director of the National Congress of the American Indian, one of the leading pan-Indian organizations in the country. 
And she was involved in some of these negotiations. And you know, she was a strong advocate already for repatriation. But when she realized that you know, these were her own ancestors murdered in one of the most horrendous acts of violence against Native peoples in the last several centuries, that these were her own ancestors in a federally funded museum, that she was able to uh, negotiate an agreement with the, the secretary of the Smithsonian. And it was through that agreement that essentially uh, would lead to the repatriation laws that we now know that are both for all museums across the United States, as well as one in particular for the Smithsonian. So after 1990 congressional passage of NAGPRA, what delayed the repatriation of the Ayuda, the Zuni war gods, by the Denver Museum of Nature and Silence and similar museums across the United States? And what were Zuni sentiments regarding this process as well as preservation and decay? Also, 20 years later, why did European museums cite national policy concerns when they declined to repatriate the war gods? So the, the Zuni tribe was really a leader in the area of repatriation. And as we've talked about in the 1970s, they started demanding back from art and natural history museums the return of the Ahayuda, as well as other sacred objects. And they did get uh, a large number of Ahayuda returned, uh, a good uh, several dozen but it was only about 20-some percent that was returned before the passage of this 1990 federal law. After the 1990 federal law, we now have almost every Ahayuda in a U.S. Uh, federally funded museum or federal agency uh, returned to the Zuni people. But you know, it's, it's a long process. Uh, museums uh, at first, after 1990, many of them were very cautious um, about returning uh, items. They weren't sure how the law was supposed to work. They weren't sure exactly how to do it. So it took a number of mu- uh, it took museums a number of years to kind of get their bearings with the law and figure out how to do it. In other cases, um, museums have not always known what they've held. Uh, you know, in some cases, uh, as I talk about my book, there was one Ahayuda that was mislabeled as a as a Hopi fence post. So there was a creator <laughs> at some point that you know literally thought one of these wood living gods, one of these beings, uh, was a fence post. And so it was only through kind of the inventory process when museums really uh, tracked down what they had that some of these items went back. And this is still an ongoing process. Um, a colleague at Zuni told me about just this last summer. Uh, yet another Ahayuda from a very small museum in Michigan uh, returned an Ahayuda. So even though we we kind of thought almost everything had gone back, you know, th- there are still museums that are trying to figure out how to comply with the law, and there is still Ahayuda being discovered. Additionally, we know Ahayuda escaped the boundaries of the United States, and NAGPRA, this 1990 federal law, only applies to museums within the United States. And there's really no international treaty, there's no international law that would establish the legal return, uh, that would require the legal return of such cultural items. So all tribes like the Zuni can do is go to these museums, try to meet the administrators and make an argument and try to convince them of the need for their sacred beings to be back home 
of the, the wrongness of these items leaving their communities in the first place and the role museums can play today in trying to heal some of these wounds from the past. And I was very honored in 2014 to go with uh, a Zuni uh, religious leader named Octavia Siautua. And uh, Octavia Siautua is the leader of the Galaxy Fraternity of the Zuni. And he leads uh, a group called the Cultural Resources Advisory uh, uh, Task Team. And they help oversee religious matters um, at sort of the interface with outsiders for the tribe. And so, so Octavius and I, we went around to some of the most well-known museums in the world, like the British Museum in London and the Musée de Quai Branly in Paris. And I watched Octavius try to make these arguments. And in all of them, except one museum, in all of them, there was really no hope for any kind of immediate return. Um, I think things have actually changed in the last like six to eight months. And so there's some new opportunities for hope. Um, but there's still just a very, very long road ahead. After 1990, uh, congressional passage of NAGPRA again, what were the Cheyenne competing claims to Sand Creek skulls of the Smithsonian, as well as the litigator claims? And how did this multivalent conflict reach a conclusion? In addition, how did Denver museums and Native American advocates comply with NAGPRA directives? Mm Mm-hmm. So, as I was saying, museums, after this 1990 federal law is passed, are doing their best, for the most part, to to figure out how to comply with it, to figure out what it all really means. Well, tribes were doing the same thing. They also didn't understand fully the implications of the law or how to follow it or how to use it to secure the return of their ancestors or, or sacred items. So... Amongst Cheyenne and Arapaho communities, uh, right after the passage of NAGPRA, there was a lot of conversation about how do we get back our our massacred ancestors from the Smithsonian. And there were different groups that stepped forward. Um, There were some uh, political leaders, there were some religious leaders, there were even some lawyers who were trying to act on behalf of the tribe or tribal members. And so you had this this kind of... um, uh, situation where all of these different groups were trying to hash out who is actually the most rightful inheritor of the responsibility of bearing these ancestors from Sand Creek. And so it took a number of years until it was it really wasn't until finally a group at um, uh, on the Cheyenne and Arapa reservation, in Oklahoma, that a group of peace chiefs got together and they made a claim. And it was really, as soon as they made the clean claim, all the other ones fell to the side because everyone could agree that this group of peace chiefs were really the people that had the, the, the most authority to speak on behalf of the tribe on such matters. And so these uh, remains, these, these body parts from these ancestors were returned um, uh, to Oklahoma. And so there was this initial uh, return that happened with these remains going to a cemetery in Oklahoma. And um, then at the same time, the Cheyenne Arapaho were becoming aware that it wasn't just the Smithsonian that held the, the victims from Sand Creek and their remains, but it was other museums as well. 
including museums such as the one I work at, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And the museum I work at had a scalp that was purportedly taken from an Arapaho chief. And it was taken by a member of the 3rd Regiment of Volunteers of the U.S. Army. He ended up selling it. It was uh, sold again and again. It went to the Crane, the Crane family that we talked about. And in 1968, it ended up at the Denver Museum. And the Denver Museum did uh, work around uh, trying to figure out how to return um, this ancestor. Uh, but at the same time, it was trying to figure out how to, to comply with all of the directives of NAGPRA. So there was an immense amount of work that the museum was undergoing at that time. If possible, can you also discuss the provenance and uh, difficult repatriation process of AC-35B, as well as additional Sand Creek scalps? And on a related note, can you briefly elaborate on the 2000 establishment of the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site and its burial area? Mm-hmm. So the, the number AC.35B is a catalog number that was assigned to the remains of this Arapaho chief. And to me, it's just so emblematic of the dehumanizing process that museums have been complicit in when they have accessioned and accepted human remains into their collections. So, you know, we have what was a part of a living person, and this, the, the, the scalp, the, the hair and parts of the head were taken during the massacre. They were turned first into a so-called trophy, as they referred to during this period in the early 1860s. Then it became a, a kind of commodity because it was, it was bought and sold. And it was turned into what was in the turn of the last century called a curio. And then when the cranes accepted this scalp into their collection, it was an artifact. And it was then that they gave a number to this item as a way to keep track of it. And so it's really this this overall process that happened over decades and decades that we go from what's a living being to this kind of um, just pure object as if it only has a number and that's its value. And that's how we keep track of it rather than a name or kinship or family or anything else. So the the story of how it ended up in the museum then also tells you about the museum's own values and how they saw it. And I think what this 1990 federal law did, uh, well, it's done many things, but I think one key thing it has done is it's encouraged museums to rethink how these items and human remains are viewed. I think the law requires restoring a sense of humanity and dignity, not just to the objects to themselves, but to the communities where they came from. So the museum in following the law, the Denver Museum in following the law, starting in the mid-1990s, began a series of consultations where they needed to sit down, talk to, and listen to Uh, tribal leaders as they made claims for their ancestors and certain kinds of of cultural items. And so they would talk to people like Gordon Yellowman of the Southern Cheyenne, and they would talk to Arapaho chiefs, and they would have to negotiate the 
the terms, the, the, they would have to negotiate the kinds of values that were being ascribed to these items. It took the Denver Museum quite a number of years to actually return the, the scalp that was taken from Sand Creek in its collection. The reason is uh, it, although in the early, in the 1990s, it was complying quite well with the, with this 1990 federal law, it began to fall out of compliance in the early 2000s. And so there were some missteps. There were some, uh, uh, you know, there were letters that weren't responded to as they should. I mean, really what should have taken months to return ended up taking by my calculation, more than 2,000 days. I mean, it was literally years of work to get the the scalp returned once it was claimed by the Arapaho and Cheyenne. It was finally transferred in 2005, but even then it wasn't still returned to the earth. It wasn't buried. And the reason was because in the intervening years, there was something called the Sand Creek National Historic Site that was created. And this is a historic site, you know, overseen by the U.S. government in consultation and collaboration with the Cheyenne and Arapaho. And this this new historic site actually, by law, included a reburial area, an area set aside just for the return of these missing victims that were being held in museums and other private collections. And it wasn't until 2008 that that area was final, finally ready to receive and allow those ancestors to be buried. So in the end, it took, uh, you know, this law, NAGPRA was passed in 1990, and that scalp wasn't, that person wasn't buried until 2008. So it took 18 years. And to me, that's <laughs> significant because you know, I, I would hope there's not a single listener, you know, to this program that would try to defend a museum possessing uh, you know, a, a body part that was taken during a massacre. And so if it takes 18 years to return what's a totally unambiguous case, think about the amount of work and the amount of time it's going to take to return the tens of thousands of other body parts and skeletons and human remains that are still in museums and the literally millions of grave goods and the thousands and thousands of sacred objects. How did centuries of settler colonialism, canneries, disease, conversion, and trade in artifacts undermine matrilineal Klingit culture in southern Alaska, particularly for the presentation of Utu at Potlatch? Also, what were the politics of the legal dispute between the widow of Klingit uh, Chief Sheikhs the Sixth and Charlie Jones, who the latter was a maternal nephew of uh, Sheikhs the Sixth, I believe? Mm-hmm. So the the arrival of colonial powers um, over previous centuries uh, took tremendous tolls. We know now, of course, on, on, on native communities all across North America. And a, in a way, this reached a climax in southern Alaska in the late 1800s. Um, really, at that point, uh, many of the native communities along the the western coast of North America there were really at a nadir. You know, there is disease had taken its toll. Uh, convert religious conversion was was um, ramping up. Um, there were laws in Canada, the United States, that tried to delimit the uh, even ability 
of Native peoples to perform their uh, religious practices. Uh, there was also the transition to a cash economy that really locked out a lot of these Native communities. So what was happening then in the, in the late 1800s um, along the, the Northwest Coast is that you had Native communities just in, in utter turmoil. And because of that, it first left a lot of items just abandoned and, and kind of easily uh, looted um, by people who were traveling by or even people who were targeting those communities. And then second, it, um, I think, allowed, if not even encouraged, many Native communities to, to get rid of their, their sacred uh, religious and clan items, uh, meaning that, you know, as people were converting, they were told that they should uh, burn, burn anything that had to do with their traditional culture. And so some people, rather than burning it, maybe they would trade it. You might as well get some money out of it, you know, but instead of uh, just simply watching your history go up in smoke. So because of the sort of overall violence and upending of the colonial period, uh, we see a lot of Native communities that were giving up their uh, traditional, traditional materials. At the same time, you did have Native peoples that were struggling to carry on their religious traditions. They weren't going to let go. And we see this, for example, with the Clinket. In, in southern Alaska, southeastern Alaska, where you had uh, community members that were still trying to uh, pass on and carry on their traditions as their forefathers had. And yet even those people, those individuals were, uh, were often uh, at odds with the system that they found themselves up against. And you mentioned the, the, the sort of matrilineal traditions. And, and in, in Clinket culture, traditionally, items, uh, religious items, clan items would be passed along. Uh, the shared uh, uh, religious items, clan items in particular, they're called utu or masterless things. These are things that belong to no individual, but they belong to the entire clan. And traditionally, they would be passed through, through matrilineages, through, through kind of your mother's uh, relations. But... Of course, U.S. Uh, law and U.S. culture is patrilineal, right? Most of us get our last names from our fathers, not our mothers. Property is passed down from uh, based on your, your father's relations, not your mother's, and so on. And so, in particular, there was this uh, lineage of leaders called uh, sheikh or chief sheikhs. And the chief sheikh's lineage had a whole array of clan items that were to be cared for by each sheikh, uh, each chief sheikh, as he as uh, he took on that leadership role and that mantle. And in the early 1900s, there became this really intense legal battle between, uh, on the one hand, these Clinket leaders who were saying, you know, we need to follow clan traditions and we pass things along through the through the matrilineage. And then you had family members saying, no, you know, these things belong to us because under U.S. property law, when your husband die, dies, everything goes to the wife rather than being passed uh, to a nephew. And so, you know, even in other words, even the terms under which these kinds of claims were being made were 
really unfolding in the crucible of colonialism. And it was just this intense struggle to try to define how tradition can, could, could even continue. Now, how did the art dealer Michael Johnson obtain the Ut'al killer whale flotilla and then, in 1973, sell it to the Denver Museum of uh, Nature and Science? If possible, in your response, please also discuss his attempt to obtain the rain screen in the uh, Clingit Whale House and the subsequent federal injunction, as well as the founding of that tribal court in the uh, Clingit village of Kukwan. So Michael Johnson was an art dealer. Uh, he scoured much of Alaska, collecting what he thought of as art objects that he would then sell to to individuals and museums uh, all around the world. And he was very successful. Uh, he was very good at convincing families to to sell him items, and these these are mostly historical items, you know, things that had been passed along for generations. And and some of them were these clan items, these clan-owned, communally-owned items that as they were passed down. And he ended up helping to obtain many of these clan items from different clans. And he also was able to obtain the killer whale flotilla robe, a what's called a Chilcot blanket, just gorgeous blanket that would be draped over one shoulder and worn at potlatches and other ceremonies. On it was um, a depiction of killer whales, a whole pod of, of killer whales that related to a story having to do with uh, Chief Shakes uh, decades ago. And he obtained this, uh, this robe from, he said, uh, a, a person named Mr. Waters, who was, he said, uh, Johnson said, a dentist in Seattle. Uh, but it seems much more likely that the Mr. Waters that is referred to in these legal documents was actually uh, someone who lived in Alaska and himself was a collector and was known to have obtained some of these chief shake items, uh, these disputed items uh, from the, the wife of one of the, the chief shakes. Uh, who believes she rightfully inherited these items from her husband, but that's what is at the heart of the dispute. Uh, Johnson ended up getting some of these um, these Chief Shakes items and this killer whale flotilla robe, and he ended up selling it to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science for $25,000. And so it was essentially um, this kind of... Um, uh, you know, trading, buying that enabled people like Johnson to gather up some of these these uh, really sacred clan items. In some cases, these uh, his attempts to to purchase things and, and gather these things, amass them, and sell them uh, created really intense conflict within Clinket communities themselves. So, you mentioned the rain screen, and so uh, it's, it's sort of this long. Uh, complicated story that I tell my book, but in brief, um, Johnson was a part of the effort, an effort to remove um, an immensely uh, important historical uh, wood screen, a, a kind of massive uh, relief piece that would have, that was placed inside a clan house uh, called the whale house. And um, it ended up becoming the part of a big legal dispute. And in a really interesting legal twist, the U.S. federal courts actually 
handed the case back to a tribal court. And so it was a tribal court that actually heard the case of whether or not uh, Johnson had a right to buy an item from a family member who said that she had a right to it, or whether or not the rain screen and these other items were in fact communal items, items that belonged to the entire clan. And uh, maybe I won't... um, I won't uh, say how it ends, so so you re- so people will check out the book, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's just totally you know, and how it ends in a way is less important than what happened in, in terms of the overall the arguments and the ideas and the struggle to 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 ask the question and try to answer who has the right to these items? Is it individuals or is it the entire community? So can you explain, if possible, uh, the 1994 implementing regulations for NAGPRA and the role that they played um, in the first uh, Denver Museum of Nature and Science uh, repatriation artifact under NAGPRA, and correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, killer whale hat? Mm -hmm. Yes. So so in 1990, Congress passes NAGPRA, this, this federal law that allows for repatriation, but on its heels would come what are called implementing regulations. So these are kind of all the, the actually nitty gritty details that would tell museums and tribes about how this process, process would work. And one of the first things that the museums were required to do under these regulations is to create lists, inventories and summaries of the items and human remains that they have in their collections, and then distribute these lists to uh, tribes, because how could tribes claim anything back if they didn't even know what museums had? That's sort of the idea of this. And you know, think about even the museum I work at, like the Denver Museum, has a collection at the time was about 50,000 items. There were 420 uh, letters sent out to 420 tribes, 420 inventories to all of those tribes. So that's a relatively mm-hmm. small collection compared to, say, like the uh, Peabody Museum at Harvard which has probably somewhere about 6 million items, I believe. I mean, you know, it's just massive amounts of work to inventory all of these items. So nonetheless, that was the requirements of the law. And many museums have worked very hard to comply with that element of NAGPRA and its regulations. So what happened was uh, for um, the Denver Museum, um, with these lists, they started being sent out. And as you'd expect, claims started to come in. And the very first claim was uh, that the Denver Museum received was from the Clinket, and it was for what's called a killer whale hat. And this was a clan item that was very, very important to a particular clan. It was shown that uh, it was taken, it was sold without the permission of the entire clan. And so therefore, under NAGPRA, the museum was required to return it. So it was returned um, in a ceremony in 1997. And actually, for my research for the book, I was able to travel to Clinket uh, country, to Alaska, and actually see the hat again. And there it's being cared for. It's in a very ceremonious way, in a very special place. And it is being brought out. It is alive again. It's part of the community in these potlatches and other ceremonies. So what role did Clinket conceptions of clan ownership and potlatch play in elucidating NAGPRA consultation and repatriation of, for the exam, for example, the uh, Raven headdress, as well as ultimately the uh, <laughs> killer whale flotilla robe. Mm-hmm. Uh, why were 
certain artifacts also return to museums. Mm-hmm. So under NAGPRA, I've been kind of skirting around it, but the, 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 the bit more of the details is that there are essentially four kinds of, of objects or cultural items that, that tribes can reclaim. Um, the first is um, funerary objects. The second is sacred objects. The third is what's called, called objects of cultural patrimony. And then the fourth category uh, is human remains. And so funerary objects, those are things that are buried with people. Sacred objects is defined basically to mean something that was religious in the past, a religious object in the past, and one that's needed again by contemporary religious leaders today. The object of cultural patrimony, um, that's kind of a fancy way of just talking about communally owned objects. This is, you know, goes all the way back to our conversation with the Ahayuda. These are things, these are items or objects or beings that are created not for one individual, not owned by one individual, but belongs to everyone. A kind of a non-native example might be like the um, Statue of Liberty, you know, which was a gift from France to the people of the United States. In a very real sense, it belongs to all of us, right? Not no no individual could, you know, rightfully uh, sell that to say another country. So these objects of cultural patrimony. It's really essential that for the Clinket that they were able to make this uh, make it clear that these items not only belonged to the clan as a whole, but that the clan didn't give permission for these items to be alienated, for them to be sold or traded or whatnot. And the way most of these uh, the Clinket and most tribes do that is through a process called consultation, which is really where you're sitting around the table and you're trying to negotiate, um, you know, the, 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 the kinds of claims that are being made on both sides. And as I recount in my book, you know, it's these consultations are very intense emotionally. You know, there's, there's anger, there's tears, there's often laughter and enjoyment too, but you know, it's, it's kind of all the possible human emotions we can have kind of wrapped into um, a meeting sitting around a table in a museum and, uh, you know, it's through those meetings, ultimately, that tribes make some of their most strongest claims uh, to their, their items that they want returned. Now, you asked, too, about why some of these items were returned to museums. And so what's really interesting about the Clinket as well is that many of the items that have left the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and other museums in the lower 48 actually end up back in museums in Alaska. And I, as I write about in the book, you know, these items, um, they're considered sacred objects, they're considered communally owned objects, and yet museums there are seen as safekeeping places. And so the tribe, in many cases, has entered into agreements with museums because museums, right, they have, um, you know, uh, fire prevention systems, they're pretty hard to break into, uh, you know, they take good care of things. That's one thing <laughs> museums do do right. And so these museums then are almost like um, these new 21st century clan houses. There's these places where these clan items live and they're cared for. And then as they're needed, clan people, clan leaders will come and essentially they check them out and they, 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 
they get them and use them in their ceremonies, and then they return them back in back to the museum for their care. And so, in a really fascinating way, right? The museums, which you know most repatriation date debates are kind of at times vilified or seen as antagonistic to the interests of native peoples. Here we have a case where local museums are actually serving local culture and they're actually helping to sustain native native uh, lifeways and traditions. Prior to 2010, why were Calusa remains classified as culturally unaffiliated or not having demonstrated a reasonable connection under the NAGPRA reserve clauses? So you're going to, I guess, describe a little bit uh, what Calusa remains refers to. Mm-hmm. And how did Seminole and uh, uh, Mikasaki, <clears throat> Seminole Mikasaki peoples attempt to challenge this classification? What happened to the Calusa remains after the final draft of NAGPRA, the code? 10.11. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question because, you know, it sort of uh, takes us yet to a new part of the country and a, a new set of issues. And the book very much tries to cover a lot of parts of Native America because so many Native communities deal with repatriation so differently. You know, there's kind of no one solution across Native American communities. Each community is coming up with its own issues. And you know, having to confront its own challenges as well. So in Southern Florida, there was a group that was historically known as the Calusa. Uh, They were there when the Spanish first arrived in the 1500. And like so many Native communities, there was incredible turmoil during the colonial period. It's believed by some that by the late 1700s, the Calusa went, quote unquote, extinct, that there were no more people that would, after the late 1700s, that would self-identify as Calusa. Historically, we know that uh, there were tribes that were in Georgia and the Carolinas, and that as the the turmoil of Florida um, during the, the colonial period transpired, these tribes moved into Florida. And they become what we now call the, or when they call themselves, the, the Seminole and Miccosukee. And um, the Seminole and Miccosukee say that the Calusa, yes, these were different people. Yes, they had different traditions. But as we moved into Florida, we adopted some of the remnants of the, the last Calusa. And they became part of our lifeways. They became part of our traditions too. They became part of our people. And so they are relatives and any remains that were excavated uh, that are called Calusa, those are our ancestors and it's our obligation to help return them to the earth uh, so that they can be at rest. And that's the argument of the Seminole Mikusuki. Under this 1990 federal law though, what we do is we try to establish what's called cultural affiliation, which is essentially trying to identify a shared group identity between the claimant tribes and the, the group from which these individuals might have come. And to determine that shared group identity, you use 10 lines of evidence, and each line of evidence has its own, um, its own merits. And you take the totality of all those lines of evidence And then you ask yourself, are you about 51% sure whether or not there's a shared group identity? And in the case of the Calusa and the Miccosukee and Seminole, 
very few museums have said that under NAGPRA, that there is a shared group identity, that they're culturally affiliated. And that was the determination made at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. However, at the Denver Museum, where I work, um, I really felt that just because legally these individuals couldn't be returned under NAGPRA didn't mean morally we shouldn't do anything about it. And we know, for example, in the historic record from the, that the Spanish kept, that the, that the Calusa didn't want their ancestors disturbed. Um, they believed that um, remains should be left in the earth uh, for different spiritual and religious reasons. They even put, would put guards in their cemeteries to make sure that uh, they wouldn't be disturbed. So we came, to, my colleagues and I came to the uh, idea that we should try to return these people anyways. And so as we were doing that work, uh, there was another element, another part of the NAGPRA regulations that is called 1011. And that's just the, the kind of numeric code um, within these regulations. And as we were trying to figure out this process, this, this new part of the regulations was implemented, which basically allowed the, even these culturally unaffiliated remains to go back home to be returned. And so ultimately, through that um, addition to the, to the law, uh, the Denver Museum was finally able to return these ancestors so that they could be put at rest. Why did many curators not support NAGPRA Code uh, 10.11? And why do you conclude at the end of your book that NAGPRA is best described as a debate over meaning, history, and future? So I think... Yeah. I heard from my colleagues a lot of reasons why uh, this this that new regulation for the cult, cult, so-called culturally unaffiliated remains, um, uh, you know, that the, they were against it, um, and um, you know, it, it varied everything from some people would say legally uh, the National Park Service, which wrote the uh, the wording for the regulation. They said they didn't have the legal right to do that, that it was only Congress that could write that section of, of the regulations. So it was everything from kind of that technical legal arguments to bigger questions about really what's the underlying purpose of NAGPRA. Is it to return objects and ancestors to lineal descendants and people who could make direct, direct claims or was it created to take care of all of these items and return all of them to the earth, no matter whether or not we could determine who, who the descendants might be? So there were also kind of really big questions about the overall purpose of the law. And I think to me, you know, this, this debate, which happened in uh, 2010, um, uh, I guess uh, kind of reached a climax in 2010. It had been going on from 1990 to, to 2010. Um, but that, that debate um, and you know, the aftermath of it is still being experienced by many tribes and museums. Um, that debate really encapsulates um, so much of the complexity of NAGPRA, where, you know, yes, it's, it's a, a law. Uh, but it's also about morality. You know, it, yes, it's about history, but it's kind of also about the politics of, of these different communities. And yes, it's about, you know, the science and what we can learn from the past, but it's also about spirituality and respecting 
uh, people's beliefs about the world. So, you know, in the end for me, NAGPRA and these repatriation debates are arguments over meaning, history, and our shared future. And what I mean by that is that NAGPRA itself, this 1990 federal law, doesn't resolve so much of the work that needs to be done. It's a process, it's a framework, but we are debating it on a daily basis. And we're debating things like, is the object before us, is it a living being? Is that ahayuda literally a being like us, or is it a piece of art to be appreciated and studied? It's also a debate about history. Do we confront the past like the Sand Creek Massacre? Is that something we must figure out how to, um, to redress and work through? Or are we really ultimately talking about the future? Are we debating about not just the future of museums, but native communities. And it's a debate about sort of this vision. You know, are museums places where we simply present other cultures and other people? Or are they places that are for everyone and we actually involve the very communities that we're trying to talk about, their history and their culture? And do we give them a voice? Do we give them a a role in helping to shape our collective and communal understanding of history and culture. So to me, NAGPRA is so fascinating and, you know, the repatriation debates are so important because they're not just about arguments over specific items. They're really about much bigger questions of who we are today, who we were in the past and who we want to be in the future. I have a final question for you. What can we expect from you next? I mean, you're still the uh, the repatriation officer at the DMNS, but is there uh, anything you have on board, any special projects in the future? By, by my estimate, the return of, not actually not even the return of all of the human remains uh, that are just in the United States will take about 200 years. Uh, so that's, it's going to take two centuries, literally, I, I, I would, I estimate just for museums and tribes to sit around the table to figure out to do with what's all, what's, what to do with all of these human remains in museums. And that doesn't even deal with all of these other kinds of cultural items we're talking about, or all of the other items and ancestors that are outside the United States. So all this is to say is that, you know, in a way I've, dedicated myself to this and I, I think it's it's going to be a long road and I don't I don't really see it ending anytime soon. So I'm continuing the work as best I can in the Denver Museum with my colleagues who are very supportive of this work. Uh, you know we're continuing consultations, we're continuing to return items. Um, we are then also um, trying to figure out what to do with the last few human remains we have. Um, and then finally, I'm working with uh, some Native communities to try to uh, facilitate the return of uh, some sacred items internationally. Um, I'm especially uh, uh, working closely with the Zuni tribe on some of these Ahayuda that are in European museums. So um, in a way, you know, it's kind of more of the same, you know, it's just the same basic work of trying to figure out what museums have and what's the right thing to do. 
Um, and yet I, I think a lot's going to change in the future. As I mentioned, um, just in the last six to eight months, a lot of, of countries in Europe have instituted new policies and even laws that will f- facilitate repatriation. And that didn't even seem possible a year ago. So, you know, the, the, even though it's kind of the same, a lot is changing at the same time. Uh, and so for me, that's, that's what I have ahead. So the book is Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, Inside the Fight to Reclaim Native America's Culture, uh, published by the University of Chicago Press, uh, by, again, Dr. Chip Colwell. It uh, recently won the National Council on Public History Book Award. Um, Again, Dr. Colwell, thanks for being on the show. It was an honor to speak with you. Thanks for your time. So on behalf of Dr. Caldwell, the New Books Network, this has been a joint production of the History and Native American Studies channel. Please tune in next time.